constructing the story of the events surrounding the birth and life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus from his own research. He very carefully went and interviewed uh, eyewitnesses, other people that were there at the time and watched what was happening and saw what was happening and he documented all of that and he wrote those things down. And that's what we have in the Gospel of Luke. It was, uh, it's interesting to me, I read a book called Miracles uh, last year and it's a, I recommend it, it's a great book. It's about 1,200 pages, so it's not for everybody. But the author documents the history of miracles from Scripture all the way through history up until the present day. And he talks about, you know, it's just, it's just a kind of a case study that miracles happen. Miracles really happen. And it's interesting because sometimes detractors, people that don't believe in miracles, will say, well, just because somebody saw something doesn't necessarily mean it actually happened. Or somebody says they saw something doesn't mean it actually happened. And the author's response to that was that without eyewitness accounts, our entire legal system falls apart because that's how everything is based on. Somebody sees something happen. So Luke, uh, in his book, talked to those that were there and saw Jesus and watched him, and he writes this account down for Theophilus. And that was, uh, in the introduction last week, we looked at the first four verses. Today, the, in verse 5, we're going to begin the actual narration. The story begins in verse 5. And there's just a, we're going to look at just a short passage again today, a few verses there, and I'll kind of explain that a little as, as we go. It's, it's short, but I, I think there's a really important message for us in this little bit. My title this morning is, But You Promised. You can't see very well, but that's a sad face. I think that little guy was supposed to get ice cream after the game, and it didn't happen, and he's, he's sad because he says, but you promised. We've all heard that, right? But you promised. Um, so let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get into the text. Father, I thank you so much for your word and uh, just the life and the richness that comes into our lives from your word. Pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us by your word today. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to look at verses 5 through 7, chapter 1, in the Gospel of Luke. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the, laws, the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So our, our story begins in the time of King Herod. Uh, time of King Herod, Herod ruled from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C., uh, this event that we're reading about today takes place in around the year 7 B.C. Our calendars are actually off a little bit. I don't know if you knew that. Jesus wasn't really born in the year zero. He was born around year six or seven. So that's why the world's so messed up, because the calendar's been off from the very beginning. That's not really why. That, that's not why. But it sounds good. Um, Herod was a very uh, vicious and brutal king. And we have seen in, I think, 
today's culture in different parts of the world as well as historically sort of the, that those kind of brutal dictatorships. And I've shared with some of you, some of you are aware, a little bit of our friends in Nicaragua right now are under the regime of Daniel Ortega, who started out to be kind of a nice guy and then just sort of got grumpier as he got older. And now uh, he has set himself in office permanently and has made some changes to the laws there that people aren't happy with, and they were protesting peacefully. And so Ortega recruited some paramilitary groups to go out, and they have been shooting peaceful protesters. And since April or May of this year, over 400 people, many of them young people, have been killed uh, in Nicaragua. We've seen this before in our lifetime, people like Idi Amin and back and Pol Pot, going back further in history to Hitler and Stalin. There are different times in history when there are brutal dictators. There are rulers who rule without much concern for people in general. They care only about their own needs. And Herod fits right in that sort of category. Here's a couple of um, quotes from different historians about King Herod. Herod was guilty of many brutal acts, including the killing of his wife, brother-in-law, three of his sons, 300 military leaders, and many others, as recorded by first-hand sources. Macrobius, one of the last pagan writers in Rome, in his book Saturnalia, wrote, when it was heard that as part of the slaughter of boys up to two years old, Herod, king of the Jews, had ordered his own son to be killed, he, uh, the emperor Augustus, remarked, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. This was a reference of how Herod, as a Jew, would not kill pigs, but had three of his sons and many others killed. One more. According to contemporary historians, Herod the Great is perhaps the only figure in ancient Jewish history who has been loathed equally by Jewish and Christian posterity. Depicted both from Jews and Christians as a tyrant and bloodthirsty ruler, modern critics have described him as the evil genius of the Judean nation, as one who would be prepared to commit any crime in order to gratify his unbounded ambition. Herod was a very ambitious person who built great castles and different monuments and things, but in the uh, operation of getting that job done, he really didn't care uh, who he heard in the process. Herod was a bad, bad guy. And so that is the environment that, that's the culture. That's, if you think about what's, what's the socio-political sort of, you know, ethos of the day. We live in a, in a certain climate today, a culture. And this is the culture that the Jewish people are living in at the time of the Gospels. They're carrying on the tradition of worshiping their God and going to temple and, and trying to be obedient and live their lives out before God under the uh, occupation of the Roman Empire and ultimately under a brutal dictator, a tyrant like Herod. And that's where we first meet Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, Zechariah is a priest. He's a descendant of Aaron. All priests were descendant of Aaron. That's how the priesthood worked. Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, is also a descendant of Aaron. So both of them are come from this pure sort of priestly lineage. Um, and in addition to sort of having that heritage in their lives, they also both... Uh, kept the commands and decrees of the Lord, it says, blamelessly. I don't think they were without sin, but ultimately they did live their lives righteously before God and did everything they could 
to serve the Lord and love the Lord and obey him and walk with him and live out their lives in obedience to God. But, verse 7 tells us, they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. And again, this is a, a narration. It's a story. Luke is telling us a story and he has a point. And the reason that he emphasized the heritage and the obedience of Zechariah and Elizabeth in verses 5 and 6 is because of the but in verse 7. They were righteous, but they had no children. This was a, uh, a double whammy, if you will, in the Old Testament. There are a couple cases of barrenness that God heals, and in one case, uh, the wife is barren, and the other case... The uh, couple is too old to have children. In this particular instance, both are true. Not only is Elizabeth barren, but the window of opportunity, shall we say, for having kids has come and gone. And uh, we're told that Zach and Liz are both very, very old now. So they're in uh, what is an impossible situation. There's no way outside of the intervention of God that this couple is going to have a child. And if you think about that, then the priestly line that they had been a part of in their family for many generations would end with them. So the, the assumption in Jewish culture, and this is the point that Luke is making, is that if you walk with God and you were obedient and faithful, that God would bless you. And one of the clearest, most common indications of God's blessing was children. And that comes directly from the law in Deuteronomy, we're told, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. These blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country, and the fruit of your womb will be blessed. The crops of your land, the young of your livestock, the calf of your herds, the lambs of your flocks, you'll be blessed in every way, and among those blessings will be children. Zach and Liz had done everything right. They served the Lord, they followed the Lord, they obeyed the Lord, and yet they have no children. So, so th there would be, as you can imagine, and, and anybody who you know has faced barrenness understands the sadness of that. There's pain with that. There's a personal sort of sense of loss. There's a you know a longing for a child, and, and that's not come to pass. And so, you know, there's just sort of a brokenheartedness that comes with that. But in addition to that, now in our culture today, if someone were barren, most people would be empathetic and compassionate towards them, kind towards them, right? Uh, in their day, though, there would have been a social stigma put on that couple as well. Because the expectation was if you were righteous and you obeyed God and you followed God that you would have kids. And so if you don't have kids, maybe you're not as righteous as you appear to be. I think people would look at them and say, well, I wonder what's you know, really going on with those two since God hasn't given them children. So what we have here is what appears to be a promise of God that has not been fulfilled. So my question to us today, and sort of what I want us to ponder a little bit is, what do we do when it seems like promises from God aren't coming true? How do we respond to that?
Um, we can become disappointed, and probably at some level we would all be disappointed. But that disappointment can turn to bitterness. We can become bitter. I have seen and known people who have become rather angry at God over expectations and promises that they believe would happen that didn't happen. Or maybe, like Zachariah and Elizabeth, you live in that place of disappointment, but you continue to faithfully serve God anyway. How do we respond? And the reality is this happens in our life, doesn't it? There, there are times in our lives, there are situations that I think all of us will face at some point in which our expectations of God will be unmet and things that we maybe believed he had promised to us or maybe that we read in Scripture and believed God promised us in Scripture will be unfulfilled. I've been... Uh, part of the vineyard movement for 42 years and have throughout that 42 years you know actively prayed for healing for people and seen miracles happen and seen God heal people but I've also prayed for many people that were not healed and sometimes when that happens there's a disappointment that comes and I'll be honest and say today there's been more than once or twice when it's crossed my mind, I don't want to do this anymore. It's not easy to press into the purpose of God when you feel as though what you've been promised and what God has spoken doesn't happen. I want to take a few minutes today and just do kind of a teaching on sort of really hermeneutics, biblical interpretation. How do we interpret passages of Scripture that appear to present promises to us uh, that might or might not be applicable to our lives? How, how do we approach that? So here's a, a few things I want us to consider. The first is that covenant matters. When we read the Old Testament, we have to remember the Israelites were under the Old Covenant, and as followers of Jesus today, we are under the New Covenant, and the purpose and expectations of God uh, on our relationship with Him are different under the New Covenant than they were under the Old Covenant. In Scripture in general, there are cultural barriers that we'll talk about in a minute. There are language barriers that uh, exist. We've mentioned earlier today some words that we have uh, translated from Hebrew and or Greek don't have an exact translation in English, so the translators do their best job, but sometimes it doesn't exactly mean what it meant. And so there's those barriers, but there's also a covenant barrier when we read the Old Testament. God's purpose and approach was very different with the Israelites before Jesus than it was and is with the church after Jesus. There are Old Testament promises that are given to Israel that were specific to their situation and what God had for them. God wanted Israel to be a blessing to the people of the world. He wanted to bless them to be that blessing. We've talked about that many times here. And his purposes in the church are a little bit different. And so some of those promises to Israel are not universal and they don't always apply to our lives. 
Now, I, I would just say this. If an Old Testament promise is not repeated in the New Testament or carried over into the New Testament, uh, I think you need to do a little research and a little background study and look into it a little further before you apply that to your life today. That doesn't mean that we can't learn from the Old Testament. I'm not saying that at all. There's many things we can learn. We can learn about the nature of God. And, and God is unchanging, and so he's the same always. We can learn about responses, like we are, we're looking at Zechariah and Elizabeth today and their responses. Scripture is full of examples of people who responded to God appropriately, but it's also full of examples of people who did not respond to God appropriately, and we can learn from both. So there's a lot we can learn, but we need to be cautious just in always applying every Old Testament promise to our lives today. Second thing I would say is... Uh, Consider the historical context. This is so, so, so important. Scriptural context is important because it's not always easy to discern what is, what is uh, a cultural reality of the day and what is a, an eternal and universal truth. And we have, to, we have to dig in a little bit to really discern those things. Because some things are very cultural, and they had meaning at the time and place they were written, and they don't have the same meaning today. And we can see that in our own life. I can't think of an example right now, but there's things that meant something, you know, at one point in history, and they mean something different today. But here's a, a scriptural example. And this is from the book of Acts in the New Testament. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, and they were singing hymns to God. They are in prison. The other prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. So God inter intervenes. He sends this earthquake. Uh, at once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and he saw the prison doors open. He drew his sword, was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights. He rushed in and fell, trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And we've all uh, read this story and talked about that line and what that means. And then Paul says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. So the cultural context is this, that the, the jailer is in the employ of one evil King Herod that we mentioned earlier. He works for the Roman government. And the penalty for him allowing those prisoners that he had charge of to escape was death by torture. He would be tortured to death. And so the reason that he drew his sword and was going to kill himself was to put a quick end to it so he didn't have to go through the torture. Paul intervenes and says, no, 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 believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. Now, if we were to take that verse out of its historical context and just read it, it would appear to say that by believing in the Lord, our entire house would be saved. Isn't that what it says? That's what it says. In the culture of the day, it was a, ancient Israel was a very male-dominant culture. Really, it was largely the influence of Jesus that began to turn that tide and shift that a little bit. Jesus began to recognize and honor the place of women in society much more than the culture in general did prior to that. But in that culture, the husband made the decisions and the family followed, including 
where we would worship and the God that we would follow. And if the husband said we're going to be Christians, then the family was obligated to follow suit and to become Christians as well. Now, that isn't the cultural context we live in today, is it? Some of us wish it was, don't we? Wouldn't you just like it if all your kids had to follow Jesus? Uh, we have a different cultural context today, and we also have the whole counsel of Scripture, and we understand not from this verse, but from the, the full counsel of the Bible, that Christianity is a, pers- a personal decision that each one of us must make at some point in our life, that it's not about the father believing and the whole family believing. You know, we've said God doesn't have any grandchildren. So it's a totally different cultural context. And taken out of context, that verse appears to say something that it doesn't really mean. So that's important. Third thing, hyperbole happens. Scripture is uh, filled with hyperbolic language. So there are absolute and or exaggerated statements used for the purpose of emphasis. They're making a point. And and we, we kind of understand this a little bit today, I think, you know, frustrated parents, you might have said, I told you a thousand times to stop that, or frustrated pastors to their worship leader. (laughs) But when we say I've told you a thousand times, what do we really mean? I've told you four times, but you haven't listened, and so it feels like I've told you a thousand times. And we're exaggerating to make a point. That's hyperbole. Um, in, in Semitic languages, there, there's no punctuation. Did you know that? So there's no explanation points, no question marks, no commas, uh, no emojis. I, I, I was just thinking about it. How, how did we communicate without emojis? How did, we, how did we get by? How did we even live, you know? It's so fun just to send that little smiley face. I'm so happy for you. Um, so hyperbole... back on track hyperbole was used for emphasis instead of an explanation point an exclamation point uh, hyperbole would be used to emphasize a statement and it's still like that in Mediterranean culture to some degree you could visit a a market in a you know a rural area and uh, you might go and say I've got some vegetables here I'll give you five dollars for these vegetables and the guy might say oh you spit on the grave of my mother and he doesn't mean you spit on the grave of my mother. He means, no, that's not enough. You've got to give me more. He's just exaggerating to make a point. We, we can be uh, led astray when we take hyperbolic language, hyperbolic language, and we read it as a promise and not as a statement for emphasis. Start off... Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. How many have, uh, you don't have to show hands, but how many have read that and wondered why that wasn't true in your life? It doesn't always work that way, does it? And, and here's the reality. That's not a guarantee. It's not a promise. It's a hyperbolic statement, and what it, what it means is this. It means, as parents, we have influence in the lives of our child. As, as parents, we want to do everything we can to be responsible and help our children get a good start in life. And if we do, the chances are much better that they will walk that out. 
It's not a promise that they will never turn from it. It's, it's a statement saying, give it your best shot and know that God will bless and honor that and work with you in it. That's what it's saying. But we take that as a promise, and it can be very, very discouraging into, uh, you know, you're your, your just your personal faith when you, when you read it that way. I want to look at one more example here. If you believe, you receive whatever you ask in prayer. Does that always work? Is it a promise? I, I've heard it read and quoted as a promise. But the point here that is being made is that faith is really, really important. That when we pray, we have to have faith. That's the point. When you pray, have faith. You need faith. It's really, really important. But the point is not that this is a 100% ironclad promise. The implications of taking it as a promise are incredibly detrimental, aren't they? Um, because you pray for something and it didn't happen. Well, whose fault is that? Well, it's your fault because you just didn't have enough faith. If you would have had more faith, God would have answered. Apply that to situations in the lives of people we know. That person would have been healed if you just had enough faith. The consequences of that sort of thinking are devastating and incredibly, incredibly uh, damaging to God's purpose and to really the fulfillment of his kingdom work. I just think it's so important that we study Scripture, we consider context, we think about what Scripture is really teaching, we take the time and the effort to really look into things and, and, and get past this whole thing of, you know, God said it, I believe it, that does it. So just a little study in hermeneutics today, a little exhortation to... Understand interpretation of Scripture, to, to think it through before we make decisions and before we take things to heart as promises that might not be. With that in mind, I think it's only fair to say this, that there are promises of God in the Bible. That we can and should expect God to do miracles. And ultimately, we know the end of the story. Zach and Elizabeth do have a child, and it is impossible for them to do so by all earthly measure. But God intervenes, and God does intervene, and we want to pray and move towards miracles. We ask for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done, and when we ask that, we're asking for the miraculous intervention of God into the situations that we are living in today uh, to be done here and now. We don't fake it. We don't pretend that it's happening if it's not happening. We be honest about it. We don't claim it and say it's happening if it's not happening, but we pray with the faith that we have. You know, I, I'll be honest. My, my favorite prayer these days, <laughs> I'm kind of like the guy, the dad in Mark chapter 9, you know, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. 
I'm praying with the faith I have today. That's the best I've got. And sometimes I need some other people around me to come and pray with me because they have a little more faith maybe than I do, and it seems to work better that way. But I understand that just having faith isn't a guarantee that God will do what I want him to do, that it's much, much more complex than that. But what faith is is moving in a direction towards what God has rather than moving away from it. One thing I would say to us is we cannot allow our own negative experiences, those things that have happened that have been painful, nor can we allow any misinterpretations or abuses we've seen in Scripture in the past by other people detour us from pressing into what God has for us today. We want to continue to press into that. The nature of the kingdom of God is such that it's here today and it's not at the same time. And that's hard. But we press on towards what God has. Last thing, and if you guys want to come up, you can. Um, I'll just say, keep your eyes on Jesus. We go through life and we wonder a lot of times why things are the way they are. Why does God heal one person and not heal another? Why does this situation, why does that person get blessed and I don't get blessed? I, you know, I, I, I've... You just ponder that stuff. Sometimes you go, this doesn't seem right. I don't understand. And I have to just keep my eyes on Jesus at those times because that's the only way I can really keep going is to know that he really is in control. And as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, he's smarter than me. He's got it figured out. So I just encourage you, keep your eye on him and pray with the faith you have and look into and press into what God has for us today and for you today. The world can be, at times, difficult. You know, the world can be, and, and I'm just conscious of the, even the, just the world today, right now, this moment that we live in, can be ugly. But God is always beautiful in the midst of that, and you can find him if you look for him. And the world can be very, very bad at times. But God is good. And when is God good? Very good. We need Wally here. He says that a little louder than the rest of you guys. God's good all the time. Why don't you guys stand? We're going to sing a last worship song.